Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12. Good. All right. God, just was testing you there, making sure. Uh, if you're new with us, and this is your first Sunday here, or this is your first Sunday here in a long time, we're in the middle of a series on Mark. And so what I'm doing on my part is, is asking you guys to read a chapter of Mark, one chapter, every day uh, during your week. So last week I asked you to read chapter 12 every day of the week. You can do that on your way to work. You can do that on a jog. You can do that however you want to do that. You can listen to it. You can read it. And the goal is just to allow the Holy Spirit to kind of bring questions up in your mind and wrestle with the text and find Jesus, meet Jesus in the text, and uh, and then come. And for my part, I promise to preach from that chapter. So today I'll be teaching uh, from Mark chapter 12. Now, we won't always do the whole chapter, uh, but I'll preach from somewhere in there. And so uh, I, I understand our teens have been having a little challenge every week to see who can guess where in the chapter Pastor Jeff will preach from. And, uh, and so today we may have two winners because I'm going to take two passages, uh, both Mark chapter 12 and uh, in uh, 13 through 17, and then another passage a little bit further down. But they kind of really go together really well. And so I invite you to take your Bibles out. And turn to page 692, I believe. Look that up today. Chapter 12, look for the big chap, big 12. Go down just a little bit until you see a little 13. And, uh, and that's where we'll start reading. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to know that Bible in the pew in front of you uh, is yours. Take it home. Uh, we want you to have that. We want that to be our gift uh, from this church to you. All right, let's hear... The gospel, according to Mark, chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asks. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now skip down just a little further uh, to to verse 28. So you'll look for a little 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. 
Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but Him. To love Him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared Asked him any more questions. This is the written word of God for the people of God. May the Holy Spirit use us to lead us to an encounter of the living word of God, whose name is Jesus. God bless you. You may be seated. Well, I wanted to uh, take a moment uh, because we are... We're kind of coming to an end of some of Jesus' teachings. We're moving kind of into the Passion Week of the Gospel. Uh, I know Mark does this thing where there's the triumphal entry and then there's some more teaching and then we get to the Passion Narratives. And so we're kind of getting to the end of this teaching time. And, and as I was looking through this and doing some study, I realized there was, there was some things going on in these two passages that we're bringing together today. And so I thought it would be good for us to look at this in terms of some campaign slogans, okay? Now, um, these are pretty commonplace for us nowadays. Um, you know, we, we have them out there every time there's an election. I've already seen uh, our, our Portage Mayoral. Um, you know, the signs are up already, these incredible flowers that just seem to spring up around October every year. And uh, so we have one candidate and hers, her thing for mayor is already citizens first, always, you know, with periods in between each one, you know, really uh, citizens first, always. Okay. We have the other, the other side that experience counts. So, you know, we've got this. But I began to look back at some older slogans. I just thought it would be fun to take a trip down memory lane. So here we have uh, President James K. Polk. And uh, he was the 11th president of the United States. And, um, and his campaign slogan went like this. Reannexation of Texas and reoccupation of Oregon. Woo! Get you stirred up on fire, right? Ready to go. Uh, so, so I guess some of these don't age too well, you know, it just doesn't quite work unless you think we should re-annex Texas. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, it's, it's interesting his running or the, the guy who ran against him, his, his slogan was who is James K. Polk. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things, uh, it's interesting. Uh, he's also the inventor of the mullet, um, just so you know. Um, then we have uh, Abraham Lincoln, probably the most well-known president. Uh, some would say the greatest president in history. Now, this was his first campaign slogan when he was uh, running for election. He eventually went on to be our 16th president. And his was, vote yourself a farm. <laughs> yeah, hey, I'd vote for that. You know, yeah, R- Miss Rural Sociology over here, she's all for that. She would have been a Lincoln voter, right? Uh, so vote yourself a farm. Again, doesn't age too well. Uh, here's uh, William McKinley. This uh, scrappy looking man uh, is uh, the 25th president. His was a full dinner pail. I'm not sure if that was supposed to be for him or for us. Um, you know, one of those things, uh, a full dinner pail. Uh, we also have Woodrow Wilson. He was the 28th president, a very stoic looking man. Um, he was probably the last American president to run on this this one. Uh, he kept us out of war. I wish there would be a few more 
uh, that might use that slogan. We could pick that up maybe next election season. That'd be nice. Uh, then we have Warren G. Harding, the 29th president, and also the first one to say that he was number one. Um, you know, uh, very, very guy. And, and he said, return to normalcy. That was, now, this was his campaign in 1916, return to normalcy. You know, so I guess, I guess they were abnormal and they needed to return to something normal. Uh, but then he gave up on that by his next one and it was Cox and Cocktails. So I, you know, I don't know. By 1920, things had gotten really good, I guess. I, I hope that that was his running mate, but, uh, we'll see. And then my favorite, my personal favorite in, in researching this, Herbert Hoover. He was the 31st president of the United States. Are you ready? I mean, this one's just awesome. A chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Woo! Man, that'll get you fired up, you know. I'm voting for that guy. Uh, I just wonder, is it just one chicken? Or do you get one every... I don't know. Anyways, some of these don't age too well. Um, but they serve their purpose in the day. All of these men uh, were the winner, you know, of their election. And so, so we have these, but I want to draw us back to one and it's, it's found in our text or a version of it is there and Jesus kind of does something with it. And I want us to look at it today. And, and it comes from Judas, the hammer Maccabeus. Isn't that a great, wouldn't you like, it sounds like a wrestling name, right? WWE Judas, the hammer Maccabeus. All right. Uh, here he comes out to the ring. Uh, he was the leader of the Maccabean revolt, revolt against the Seleucid Empire in like 200 years before Jesus. And part of their rallying cry of their campaign to overtake the Seleucids was give the Gentiles what they deserve and obey the commands of the law. It kind of got shortened a little bit to Give the Gentiles what the Gentiles deserve. And, and it was really a, a call for vengeance and religion. Vengeance first, then religion. Get these other outsiders out of here and obey the commands. And so we have this. This would have been said for 200 years. This would have been one of those cries that people had not forgotten. And now that they were under the occupation of Rome and those kinds of things, this statement would have been said in hushed breath. But the zealots really began to take this one on, that we should give those Gentiles what the Gentiles deserve. Give to the Gentiles what the Gentiles need. And and that is you know, just really about vengeance and then obey the commands of the law. So when we begin to move and we hear this place where they're trying to trap Jesus with this this understanding about tax. Now, I want us to kind of get out of the mindset of this is uh, Jesus just saying pay taxes it includes that, but there's a whole lot more going on in this in this story in this moment. You see, it, there was there were lots of things wrapped up about it you know, because Jews they did not make any graven images of God or human beings, and so to have a coin with Caesar's head on it was something you didn't really want to be around, you didn't want to use, you didn't want to touch. So it was it was something that just 
for them they saw as unclean. And yet they were forced to pay these taxes to Caesar, to Rome, to do that in quite exorbitant amounts. And he wasn't the only one. They had that one. They had one for Herod. They had temple tax. They had all kinds of stuff. They would have to change money. It was a big hassle. And, and so what these leaders in the Jewish faith, these Pharisees, these uh, Sadducees and Herodians, what they're, what they're really doing, or the Pharisees and the Herodians, what they're really doing is trying to trap Jesus by having him try to make a statement that is against government. And then they can point him out as a rebel. They can write him off. And just send him off, and eventually they can report this to Rome, and he'll be labeled a troublemaker and gotten rid of. And so Jesus uh, does something. He's kind of a, you know, kind of a word ninja. You know, he's just able to kind of take the momentum and and throw it over. And so he says, first of all, bring me a denarius. So Jesus isn't really too like, ooh, I don't want to touch this icky money and this icky stuff from the outsiders, from those Gentiles. And he looks at it. And, and he asks a very, very important question. Whose image is this? I want you to hold on to that question because it does become important in the, in the, in the slogan that Jesus refers to. Whose image is on this coin? Now, this coin was, was really the media of the day. They didn't have Facebook or Twitter, thank God, and, uh, and, and those kinds of things. But if you wanted people to know you were the ruler, one of the ways you did that was, first of all, through your army. Second of all, was in your coinage. That every time you had to pay for something, every time you had to pay a tax, every time you had to buy something in the market, those you would see that image. Now, we're so used to it, and we have so many images bombarded us all the time, we forget, you know, we hand over quarters and nickels and dimes and dollar bills and bigger bills, and we, we hardly even look at who's on them anymore. But in that day and age, it was a big thing. And Jesus holds it, says, whose image is that? And they say, Caesar's, because it was. And then he takes this campaign slogan filled with vengeance and religion. And he turns it on its head. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. First part's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, it's amazing. He takes this, this, uh, this campaign slogan that would be on the lips, especially of zealots. They would know this. They would know what's going on. He'd already called them out about trying to trap them. And he, and he takes it out and he says, ah, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He, he kind of brings in, they would have known, they would, aha, you know, there it is. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But give to God what is God's. I want to pause for just a second because when he says, give to God what is God's, and he's already talked about image, who would they have understood is, whose image are you in? Anybody want to take a guess at that? Whose image does the Bible say you were created in? God's image. 
So he's saying, we're talking a lot about tax and, and we're trying to trap me into something, trying to paint me as the next Judas Maccabeus, the one who is about vengeance and religion and using religion for vengeance. And Jesus again takes this phrase, he turns it on his head, he touches the money, he says, whose image is this? They say Caesar's. He says, give that image back to Caesar. But you who are created in the image of God, Give that to God. Give that back to God. And standing in the temple, a place that he had already, remember last week, had talked about was not fulfilling its purpose of showing forgiveness to those created in the image of God. Of not giving full access to all the nations for the mercy, the forgiveness that they would long to receive and give back to God. He says, I give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And you who are made in the image of God, give yourselves back to God. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. He says you are to give yourself to God. You are what God longs for. You are, are why Jesus came. You are the one that God longs to be in this relationship with. And so he takes us on a little further in our next passage. And, and I believe he gives us more than just a slogan. A slogan is something that doesn't age well. We've already seen that. A slogan is something that is a rallying cry and then kind of dies off. It loses its context. It loses all those things. But when we get this question to Jesus by a lawyer about what is the greatest commandment, first of all, this is something that I, you know, I guess because they didn't have Facebook, Twitter, and video games, um, it was pretty common to sit around in groups as Jewish teachers and talk about what's the greatest commandment. It's a very common question. This is something they would have argued about in the temple courts. They would have gotten together. It was kind of, I guess, their version of fun. It was their Super Bowl. You know, they would get together and do that. I don't know if they cook chili like we do. Um, if they didn't, then theirs is way more boring than ours. Than ours. But they would get together and they would, they would wrestle this out. And so this lawyer comes and asks Jesus. And Jesus gives, I think, a great answer that really defines what his kingdom is all about. And he says, God is one. He starts by quoting the prayer that every Jewish person would begin the day and end the day with. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is not uncommon, but he does something very interesting. He also, and I, I tried to read it in a way that would kind of highlight this. He, he kind of finishes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He wants to, to put all these together. The first one is a commandment. The second one is a commandment. He brings them all together and runs them on. It is as if Jesus is saying that love is the only way. Love of God and love of neighbor. And your love of neighbor is part of how you show your love of God. It's not just about gathering on Sunday morning and getting together and sitting in nice pews and standing up and raising your hand and singing some songs and praying and reading your Bible. There is something about the love of neighbor, the love of the other person that shows 
your love of God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Why? Because every person on this planet was created in the image of who? God. So when you are loving your neighbor as yourself, and if we want to go on and look at at the way Luke does it, this is right after this passage. Luke takes us into the study of the Good Samaritan, which really just emphasizes that even love of enemy is part of this radical love that transforms the world. And the way that people who are called by God's name and say, I want to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, you do that by loving the other the neighbor, and your enemies. That's a, that's a powerful statement. In fact, there's a book about a rabbi. as a rabbi's talk with Jesus. And when he comes to this passage, and when he comes to reading the Sermon on the Mount, he finishes by saying, I cannot be a follower of Jesus. Because I believe that what Jesus asks of me in the Sermon on the Mount and these commandments, only God can ask of me. To which we as Christians say, yes, that's right. And he did in Jesus. And so we are called to this amazing thing. And the, and the interesting thing is the lawyer is the one who finally puts everything together. Can you imagine standing in the midst of the temple? And he says to Jesus, you are right to declare that God is one, to declare that we are to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbor as ourself does away with all this sacrificing going on. It does away with all this ways that we've set up religion to to function. It, it, It does away with all of this. It's more important to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and your strength and to show that love in love of neighbor, in love of enemy, in love of any other human being on the planet. Jesus confirms this by saying you're near the kingdom. That's That's what the kingdom is really all about. So what do we do with this? Well, I want to argue uh, as we close that we are, we are, I, I said at the beginning, we're nearing the end of Jesus' teaching. I love what my, my teacher Richard says. He says, he calls it, we're, we're nearing the end of the great comma. The great comma. You know what a comma is, right? That little thing where there's a pause. He calls it the great comma. Uh, And this is why we have our Apostles Creed and we won't go through the whole creed today. But, you know, the one that believes I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And it goes on and it says, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And there's a comma in between born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. He says that's a great comma. There is so much in that comma that we have skipped over. (laughs) That he was born and then he died. And it's as if the church for thousands of years has operated as if Jesus was born and then he died and that was the only thing that was important. He says, boy, that's a great comma. So I wanted to draw our attention to the fact that we are just now, we, you know, Mark doesn't even deal with the birth of Jesus. He just comes in the desert. And then we're about to enter into suffering under Pontius Pilate. 
But all of what we have studied so far from Mark chapter 1 to chapter 12 is sometimes something that Christians completely ignore in lieu of just He was born and He died. He suffered and He died. And don't get me wrong, those are important things. We're about to enter into Advent not too long and then we'll go into Christmas season. And and this is going to be a wonderful thing. The Incarnation is a powerful thing for Christians. And the death of Jesus is it makes a doorway for every human being on the planet. Praise the Lord. But the truth of the matter is, my brothers and my sisters, we are leaving so much of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to call Him Lord, which means that the way He calls us to live our lives is a way that leads to greater and greater life for ourselves and for others. And so we can no longer live our lives with the great comma. If we do that, we make Christianity into the same thing that was going on in the temple that Jesus said, "Eh, it gets pushed a little bit out of the limelight so that we realize we're called to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we show that by loving our neighbor, the other, the enemy, as we love ourselves. So what are we going to do? Because I don't know about you, I want to live my life thankful for Christmas and Easter. I really do. But brothers and sisters, the world is not going to change until we begin to ask for the Holy Spirit to help us live out what is found in the great comma. And that is the teachings of Jesus. The teachings that don't allow us to move as most other religions move into the, into the avenue of violence and civil religion. We can no longer live there and call ourselves Christians. Because Jesus was born and taught for three years before he suffered and died. And he called men and women to follow after his way as the way, the truth, and the life. So I say to you today, my brothers and sisters, I challenge us to be a church that lives into the life that is covered over by the great comma. Oh, we'll celebrate Christmas. Don't believe me? Come back right after Thanksgiving. We'll have, we'll have all the lights. We'll have the fun. We'll light the candles. We'll count down till Christmas. We're going to have a great Christmas Eve service on Sunday. We're, we're going to, it's going to be awesome. If you don't believe we celebrate Easter here, then you have not been to Easter here. We baptize people. We, we, we celebrate the resurrection. We do all of those things. That is so important. We want you to be here for those things. But we are going to be a church that realizes that what Jesus calls us to is not just a campaign slogan. It is a way to live. And the way to live is to love God with all that we are and to love other people is how we show that love to God. And I believe that God calls us to that. And so today, I think it's just good for us to come to the table, to receive bread and cup, symbols of the kingdom, broken body. You know, that's what it means when we have to go out And love others that sometimes there is a breaking that has to happen in us. First of our hearts to see others. 
Second, to have our egos chipped away at so that God's heart can come to full life within us. We need bread. Shed blood. We need the cup. Because for us, sometimes it is harder to shed our actual blood than it is to live into the forgiveness that God calls us to. Calls us to be a part of distributing and and giving out in the world. That's why we come together. That's, That's why we give you bread and cup on a regular basis, to remind you that now what Paul will say later, you all are the body of Christ. You are called to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor, the other, the enemy, as yourself is how you show that. So come, receive the elements that will teach you our faith. Our faith that calls you to love in radical ways. Our faith that was demonstrated and shown in the teachings and, yes, the birth, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to ask you to come forward.